Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter one and two is where we're gonna be this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you or a phone with a Bible app or something, we do have a Bible that we'd love to get into your hands. So if you forgot one, throw your hand up, grab one of these. If you don't own a Bible, take one of these as our gift to you. Go to Exodus chapter one. Exodus chapter one, we're gonna be starting in verse 15. As you're turning there, you know, it, it doesn't take long in life. And if, if, you're, if you're a little bit older or maybe you're younger and you've experienced some things that have brought you to this place where, where it doesn't take long, where you start to ask those deeper questions. Questions of, what is this all about? What does all of this life really mean? Who, who am I? Is, is there really a God? And if there is a God, does this God care for me? And I don't think you can live your whole life without at one point in your life coming to that place where, where you start to ask these questions and underneath all the psychological reasons for this, underneath all the, the social reasons that, that would drive us to this, we, we recognize there is a deep spiritual need in each one of us. I'm not saying that everybody, but most people can't get through life without coming to deep times like that where you ask the harder, the deeper questions of life. And oftentimes we ask the questions when life is hard, when things don't seem to make sense, when we're wondering where is God in all of this. And it's what I love about scriptures. I love how raw and honest God is. I love that God doesn't pull punches. God's not trying to slip something by us. He's not trying to sell us something. I mean, there's something so commercial, right? There's something that's so so marketing driven when you, you hear preachers say things like, man, if you just follow Jesus, everything's gonna be amazing, Right? Your whole life will be great. Your, your health will be good. Relationships will be perfect. Your finances will grow. Like it's just, just a, a marketing ploy. Isn't it? it feels like, man, am I being sold something in this? Because it doesn't seem that real to me. And this is what I love about God's word. God's not selling us something. It's so much more honest. And what do we see over and over again in scripture? We see it over and over again all throughout church history. You see broken people, sinful people, scared people, flawed people and the power of God at work in them and through them and working through horribly difficult circumstances, all for his glory, all for his purposes. And so, so this morning, as we jump in this morning to Exodus, here, here's our first point as we jump in. It's this, when God seems silent, he's still working. When God seems the most silent, he's still working. He's still working. Now, now, remember when we started jumping into this book of Exodus, we, we got a, a, these bunch of people, God's people, and it's bleak for them. They're, they're in slavery under this, this tyrant, an, an Egyptian pharaoh, and it's been 400 years since they've experienced what you would call blessing. When life was really good, and, and Pharaoh was scared, though, because they were actually being blessed, because as a people, they were growing. They were multiplying as they were in Egypt. And, and, and so what did Pharaoh do? Scared of them, scared they would grow and maybe become an enemy to him. He puts them into slavery. And you see verse 13 of chapter 1. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Their life is bitter. That, that, that word there, bitter, it's, it means that it's hard. It's, it's full of weeping. We think that's pretty hard. Man, where is God in this? But it actually gets worse. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. 
So, so Pharaoh, so scared of the Hebrew people, so worried they're gonna grow up. So, so his plan is, I gotta weaken this people. I gotta, I gotta take them out. And so, so what he decides, I'm gonna kill all the newborn sons. Now here's the thing, this Pharaoh, this Pharaoh's politically smart. It would not be smart of him to just step right in and go, hey, bring your babies out, I'm gonna kill them. No, no, because then there could be an uprising at that moment. So he's more subversive. He gets their own people, grabs these midwives and says, hey, hey, you guys are gonna do this. It's secretive. I want you, while the, the baby is being born, as soon as you see that it's a male baby right there, kill the baby. Man, how dark is that? How, how evil of a plan is that? It's tragic. Pharaoh's idea here, obviously, is that these boys will grow up to be men. They, they may grow up to be this military threat to him. But he, he's thinking this, in this culture, he's thinking, women, girls, I can control them. Now, Pharaoh had teenage daughters. How would he ever think that? I don't get that. But anyway, in all seriousness, though, most historians would say this, that, that in this culture, it's, 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 it would have been so easy to assimilate the Hebrew nation into the Egyptian nation if you got rid of all the males. Because what you do, you could take the girls, the young girls, you could sell into sex slavery. The, the young girls, you could marry them off to your people. And eventually the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew people would have been gone. And we'll see how much Pharaoh underestimated the power of God as we work through this, and we see these strong women that he thinks are oh, the women I can control, and these strong women show up. Look at verse 12, though. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread ab abroad. They're oppressed, and God's plan continues to move forward. You're going to see this throughout these, these first two chapters. You're going to see this throughout Exodus, that God's plan just continues to go forward, that, that Pharaoh tries to thwart it, Pharaoh tries to stop it. They're in such bitter circumstances. God's still at work. I'll work them to death. They grow. Now, now he's taking it further saying, okay, I can't work them to death. I'm going to get these women to, to kill the, the baby boys. Look at verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if, a son, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, they shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. So they're like, man, these, these ladies are not like your wimpy ladies living in luxury, right? They're in the field, man. They're working hard. Baby, boom, their baby's there. It's been born, right? Now, now were they lying? I don't know. Maybe they, were they? I'm not sure. Maybe the babies were being born quickly. Here's the thing. They're like, you know what? We don't fear you, Pharaoh. We fear God. We're going to come back and circle back on these women again. But, but look at verse 20. So God dealt with the midwives and the people again multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They grew and got strong. God's plan continuing to go. And you got to figure that there must have been a bunch of time that happened between verse 16, hey, kill all the male children, and verse 18, hey, midwives, what's going on? Maybe a couple years has gone by, and, and people are kind of saying to Pharaoh, hey, do you notice that there's still a lot of little baby Hebrew boys running around, right? The command had been given to these midwives. Now, now, now these two weren't the only midwives. You remember that, that there could be between two and three million Hebrews at this time. And so, so they were likely midwives who were over other midwives. They had some authority over other midwives. This command's given. 
They don't follow through on the command. They say, no, we fear God more than you. So Pharaoh ups the game a little bit, goes to plan three. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. All the Egyptians. Now, now here's the new plan. Every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. So here's the new plan. Now, when you see a baby boy that's a Hebrew, you rip it out of the arms of that mom and you throw that boy into the Nile River. How tragic is that? Think how much this mirrors our culture today, though, doesn't it? Let's just get rid of these kids. If they're trouble, we've got a way we can do it. And, and, and Pharaoh's saying, just throw them in the Nile. It's painless. It's easy. They're just done away with it. You don't have to think about it anymore. The, the, the water will just wash them away. All this craziness, it would have been over years. It takes us seconds to read this, but it could have been decades. Decades of chaos. Decades of struggle. But listen, God is still at work in all of this. In all that we see, we see God working behind the scenes in, in constant care. And, and I say behind the scenes because we don't always see it, right? It's, it's hard for us at times to see, God, what are you up to? We know God's at work. We, we'll trust, okay, God, we get you're not just this far off God who spun everything into existence and just stepped back to watch it happen. No, no, you jumped in. You are in. You're involved. You're a caring God. You're at work, but man, I don't always see it. And I don't know, always know what you're doing. And so what happens is our skepticism begins to think this way. Man, if suffering's in my life, there can't be any purpose to that. There's no good reason for that. I, I can't see the plan. I can't see the purpose. And, and our problem is we have this very limited view. God has the whole picture in mind. It's kind of like this. It's like stepping into a room where people are watching a movie. You step in really quickly to talk to somebody, see what's going on on the screen. Then you step out and someone says, hey, how's that movie? They're like, it's the lamest movie I've ever seen. There's some dude in a freezer punching cows. How dumb is that? It's Rocky. It's a movie from the 70s, kids. Really good. You should see it, all right? But when you see the whole movie, though, you get, oh, wait a minute, I get that. You're fired up. He's punching dead cows because he's getting ready to take on Apollo Creed. But you know the whole picture. You know the whole story, right? We come at life. Listen, we only see part of the story. And then we put God on trial saying, why are you doing this? You have no plan here. Listen, God sees the whole story. You got to think if God's infinite in wisdom, then maybe compared to our wisdom, it makes sense there are some things that would be happening in our life that we don't understand. He's so far removed from us. Just think about if, if, if he's far removed from, from wisdom, th think about it this way, how far removed he is from us in his power. You get an idea, the distance between his wisdom and our wisdom, when you think of the distance between, distance between his power and our power. The Milky Way is so huge that if you were to travel at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to cross it. The Milky Way is just one of an infinite number of galaxies in our universe, and God created it with a word of his mouth. I can barely change the oil in my car, right? right don't get all puffed up and say, I can. You didn't breathe your car into existence though, right? 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 So, so just because we can't see a purpose in what's happening in our lives does not mean that God has all wisdom in, in, and he's at work behind the scenes, even using the struggles. Listen, we, we never fully understand the mind of God. We never will. 
but, but rest is not found in us trying harder to go, I wonder what God's thinking. I wonder what his will is. A rest is found when we entrust ourselves to him as a good father. When we rest in his character, in his promises, in his love, where, where, where even in the midst of, of trying times, we'd say, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what my father is bringing into my life, but I know this, he loves me. He's wise. He, he knows what I need. And I know that I'll be rescued. I know that I can rest. And we can talk about this idea of God's care. We can, we can burn through Exodus and we, we can know the end of the story. We can say, oh man, look how it worked out for the Hebrew people. God used all of this. But when you're wrestling in the middle of it, when you're in a broken world, in a chaotic time, when you're in terrible suffering, I mean, how, how do you grab a hold of hope in those times? I would say this, it's, it's part of the beauty of church. It's, it's why we need each other in this. We need each other to come alongside each other and not, not with some goofy, fluffy, man, if you know Jesus, you'll never suffer anymore. You'll never doubt anymore. I mean, you just need to let go and let God. I don't know why you're struggling, right? Like, not with that stuff. Listen, listen, if you are struggling, just a side note, if you are wrestling with God in this moment, that's the season you find yourself in, man, you can relate to some pretty big heroes of the faith. You think about, about David, a man after God's own heart. You read through the Psalms and, and you hear him cry out, how long, oh God, have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten about me? The prophet Jeremiah, he actually said to God, you tricked me. You wooed me to follow you. And now here I am a prophet where everybody wants to kill me. And you tricked me into this. That's Jeremiah. But, but here's what I love about church. Here's what I love about us gathering together. And, and let me clarify, a church where you can wrestle with this stuff, where it's okay to struggle with these things. A church where, where you don't need to fake it till you make it, right? Where you don't have to put on the religious happy face all the time. Oh, bless you. I'm blessed. I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. It's okay to be broken, confused, lonely, and despair that we, we don't hide out from that. But listen, listen. We come alongside each other in it. And we come alongside each other with, with that brutal honesty of, man, I get it. Man, I've been there too. We don't just stay there. We say, Let, let's, let's pray together. Is there a way I can come alongside you? Is there some way I can serve you? Some way I can walk with you through this? Because I don't see God's plan either. But together, together we can seek the Lord in this. Together we can jump into the word together. We can see what God says to our lives and our situations. Together we can pray about this. And together we can look to the cross. We can see that Christ gave himself completely for us and we can see his love for us. And we do that together. We point each other there together. This is why the book of Exodus is so important for us because we see God at work. We see his plan unfold. This is why the book of Exodus throughout church history, it's Christians reading back going, okay, yeah, God is at work. God was at work to rescue and redeem. And it's all pointing to the ultimate rescue that we know we have in Christ and that nothing can stop God's rescue. No Pharaoh can stop him. And so what do we do? We seek him together. C.S. Lewis said it this way after he'd lost his wife. He said, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. God's at work even when we don't see it. And when he's the most silent, he's still at work. 
Now, here's the second thing we see here. Yes, he's at work, and, and we see this all throughout out the book of Acts. We're going to see him just continue to work behind the scenes. It's all over Scripture. But here, here's something else we see in Acts and all through Scripture, that God does not just step in and use the powerful, the connected, the insiders, the strong, the big dogs. God says, listen, I'm going to perform a rescuing work, and who does he use? God's working for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the, excuse, and the, the excluded, but, but he also steps in and he works through them, through weakness, not power. Here's our second point this morning. It's this, salvation comes through the humble, not the strong. It seems that all through scripture you see this, especially here in Exodus, that, that God steps in into our world where, where, where where we think it's only the strong and powerful. And God says, no, I'm going to use somebody different than that. Like, look at verse 15. You've got these, these midwives, Shifra and Pua. Now, they would have been the lowest of the low. They, 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 were, they were Hebrew slaves who were women midwives. A couple of women slaves. And, and I love how God steps in and says, I'm going to use the person you don't think would be able to be used. He does it all through. You read through Genesis. God steps into a culture, into a culture where the firstborn gets everything. And God says, no, I choose the secondborn. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. You read through Genesis and God seems to always step in and go, I'm going to use the barren woman. I'm going to use the older woman. I'm going to use the unloved woman. I'm, I, I choose Sarah, not Hagar. I choose Leah, not Rachel. And then we come to Exodus and, and it's this time where, where God needs to step in and to act. And who does he choose as his hero? He chooses these slave women. But look at the kind of women they are, women who fear the Lord. Listen, listen, that's the kind of feminine strength our world needs, women who fear the Lord. Their names are Shifra and Pua, they're midwives. And historians would say that if you're a midwife in this time, as a Hebrew midwife, you probably didn't have kids of your own. In fact, you look at verse 21, it says that God blessed them, how? By giving them families. So for sure, the, these midwives did not have families. They, they would have been barren as well or didn't have husbands, whatever was the case. And here's the thing, in this culture, so not only are you a slave, not only are you a woman in this culture, which pushes you down in that culture, you're now a midwife without kids, which, which would say, man, man you, you've got something wrong with you. You have nothing to add to this culture. If Even worse, they would say, maybe you're cursed. And yet as weak as they were in society, powerless, they stand up to the most powerful person in the world at that time, the Pharaoh. And they refuse to go along with his plan. And, and then God saves his people through this, through the lowest. And, and here's what I love. Here's what I love about this story. We never, all through the book of Exodus, we never hear Pharaoh's name. He just called the Pharaoh. It's almost like saying the president, the king. We have no idea what his name is. And he's supposed to be this most powerful guy. His name never given, but the two midwives here, these poor, these marginal, these outsiders, their names are put in the text. Do you, do you think that's a mistake? Do you think it's just, that's just an accident? No, no, I believe it's this God saying, to the end of time, you're going to know who these women are. God uses the humble. When you get to chapter 2, and you see this again, where God uses the least expected again. Look at chapter 2. It starts off this way. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw the child was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Again, what's going on? She's defying the law of the land. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, 
She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. I love that. She's going, okay, Pharaoh, I got to throw my baby in the river. I'm going to make a boat for him, right? How awesome is that? All right, verse four. And, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and said to her servant woman, sent her servant woman, and she took it. Now again, who's God using? God's using a a Hebrew mom who defies Pharaoh, and a, a Hebrew young girl, Moses' sister, and now he's using Pharaoh's own daughter. Are you kidding me? The actual tyrant himself? God says, I'm going to use this person. A total pagan, the, the daughter of the one who's causing all of this. How cool is that? It goes on. Verse six, when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. How cool is that? Hey, do you want someone to take care of this baby to, 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 to nurse the baby until it's ready to, to become your kid? Yeah, sure. Who, who, do you know anybody? Yeah, I know somebody. I know his mom. Verse nine, and Pharaoh's daughter said, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So now you're gonna get paid to do it. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So who's God using? God using all these people, even even Pharaoh's daughter to risk herself to say to her dad, I want to keep this Hebrew boy alive. I mean, you need to see here that that no one here is so far outside of God's plan. If you say, but I'm too weak, I'm too sinful, I'm too broken, I'm too far off, I'm too not connected. In all of your life, you may have been told that by other people or maybe even by yourself. You wear these labels about you. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're willing to put God first. How do you do that? The key is verse 17. Go back to verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God. That's the whole key. The midwives feared God. They didn't fear how low their status was. They didn't wait until maybe, maybe when we're bigger and more powerful in society's eyes. They didn't fear the mighty Pharaoh. They feared God. And what's that mean to fear God? It doesn't mean, oh no, God's going to strike me with a lightning bolt, so I'm scared of him. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is you're so struck by his majesty. You have so much awe of who he is. That you're far more concerned about what God's view of you is than anybody of you. Because you say, God, you are so much greater. And our honey, more than power, more than anything else. We worship him more than people. We worship him more than status, more than money, more than power, more than comfort. And and we see all these other things that we typically reach out and grab for hope. We grab for life. And and we're fearful if we don't have them. We're, We're fearful of other things coming in to steal that away. And what the fear of the Lord does is it does this. I don't fear that anymore. I fear God more. And God, you're the one who is in control. You're the one who cares for me. So I'm going to put you first. I'm going to trust you completely. Here these midwives were. They weren't in awe of Pharaoh's power. Like Pharaoh, who's he? God's using Pharaoh. 
They trust God completely. And I, listen, listen. That, that's why when you, when you read through church history and you, you read through the, the, the New Testament, you see how the early Christians had so much fearlessness as they stepped out. Why? Why were they so unconquerable? Because nothing could threaten them. There's nothing that could scare them. We're going to beat you. Hmm? That's all right. Suffering here can't compare to the eternal way to glory I've got waiting for me. We'll kill you then. Great, kill me to, to live as Christ, but to die is gain. I get to go to eternity with him. Then, then we'll destroy this gospel message you have. We'll do it by destroying you and all your followers. And I can imagine them saying, man, you tried that with Jesus. How did that work out for you, right? I heard somebody say this. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll throw you in prison. Great. We need to write some letters anyway. Give us a guitar. We'll put on a worship service. We'll lead your jailer to Christ, right? That's these women in this text. That's, that's where they're at. Saying we, we fear God more than anything else and God is in control. In fact, let me show you what happens when, when the opposite comes in, when somebody in power comes in and, and what God needs to do to use them. Remember that Moses grows up in Pharaoh's home. Now again, you see how God's at work in the suffering, right? That God would take something that, that Pharaoh's doing. How, how would a Hebrew young boy ever get to come into Pharaoh's home? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe through the suffering of, hey, we're going to kill all these babies. And Pharaoh's daughter goes, not this one. Brings him home. God's got that work using all of this. God knew that, that to create this leader who's going to be the liberator for all these people, that, that, that this leader needed to be trained well to be a leader. So here's, here's Moses. Here's how God works out this plan so perfectly. Hey, for the first three or four years of his life, he's going to be raised by his mom in Hebrew culture, knowing who God is. And then after that, where he's going to be pulled out and he's going to, he's going to live in Pharaoh's court. He's going to have the best education you could ever have. He's going to be trained to be the leader you would need to be to lead two to three million people. I mean, I love it. You see what God's doing? God does this all the time. He does a judo move on, on Satan all the time. Satan, you know, judo, right? Where they, they, they try to use their force and judo as you take that force and use it against them. Satan gets judoed all the time by God. I love it. He said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll send Pharaoh. He'll do this. Perfect, I'll use that. And then Pharaoh actually raises up the very liberator who's going to rescue all the people from him. How awesome is that? Can, can, can you see the picture of what this points to? That Satan says, I'm going to kill Jesus, God the Son. And God's like, yes, I'm using this to spin it on you, to destroy you and your work. Love it. Every bad thing Pharaoh's doing is turning out for good. Here we have Moses, his name meaning, meaning drawn out of the water. He's been rescued out of the chaos of the water where he should have been thrown to die. He's been rescued out of that and he's going to be used to rescue God's people from that chaos. But here's what I want you to see quickly. All the power that Moses had now. It looked like he'd been trained to be the perfect leader that you would need and yet he was still unable to be used by God. Why is that? Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He kills the guy. And he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely this thing is known. 
When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Here's what, I'm, here's what we're seeing here. God had a plan for Moses to use him, but he could not use him until he'd humbled him. God could not use Moses until he'd humbled him. Listen, if, if you're in a place of, hey, hey, man, I, I got everything going on. I'm doing pretty good. Man, God could use me because I'm a, I'm a bit of a big deal. You're in a much more dangerous place. If, if, if you're in that place of, man, why do we got to keep talking about the gospel? Man, I, I got this. Like, can we, can we move on to something else? You might be in a dangerous place when you don't recognize your desperate need of Jesus every day. So during this season of Moses' life, God, God steps in and God begins to break him. God begins to humble Moses. You see the arrogance where he says, what, what's going on here? I can take care of this. I'll just kill this guy. Then he steps into the two Hebrews. I'll take care of this. What are you guys doing? And they said, really, who are you? We're going to unpack his schooling more next week, but this school of humbling took 40 years. Moses needed to learn a lesson that, listen, every one of us need to learn self-sufficiency does not work with God. The essence of the gospel is that we are helpless sinners in need of a savior. Self-sufficiency does not work with God. Receiving Jesus as your savior means you've come to the end of your own ability. You, you throw yourself on the mercy and the work of Jesus. Again, self-sufficiency and salvation do not go together. As we walk out this Christian life, it begins that way in humility, but listen, it continues that way as well. This place of humble dependency. In fact, I love how Paul gives us the example in Philippians chapter two, the example of Jesus saying, this is how you're to live. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love how A.W. Tozer said it. He said this, it's doubtful whether God can bless someone until he has hurt him deeply. As we wrap up this morning, here's what I want to do. I want us to see how Moses points us to Jesus. When you hear the story of Exodus, it, it should be, if you're a, a, someone who's a New Testament Christian, it should be going, man, that, this sounds familiar to me. A, a tyrant king ordering baby male infants to be killed. And yet in the midst of that, a child is born who grows up and liberates his people. A person who was rejected by his own people goes into the wilderness and he's anointed with the spirit of God and returns to lead them out. I mean, does that sound familiar to you? What are we seeing here? When we read through Exodus, you're, you're looking forward saying, what's this pointing to? It's pointing to Jesus as the ultimate Moses, the ultimate liberator. He's leading an Exodus that, that liberates us from sin and death, liberates us for eternity. Yeah, Moses risked his life to, to be a liberator. Jesus gave his life by dying on the cross. And it's only when you see yourself as a slave in need of saving, when you're humbled to the place where you recognize your weakness. It's only when you say, Heavenly Father, would you save me? Save me not because of anything I'm doing, but because of Jesus' work. And you trust in the cross. <coughs> the salvation of Christ is not brought by us saying, look how how well I do. 
Look how strong I am. It's look how weak I am. God, I need your grace. And we see that God is at work and, and, and not just that we read through Exodus and say, hey, look how it worked out for Moses. That's so great. But again, look towards what Moses is pointing to that we can see God is at work because we see Jesus. We see the cross of Christ. That, that's the ultimate place where it looked like God was completely silent. God was not doing anything in the moment. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet in that, God's doing the ultimate, the best thing he could do. I'd say it this way. Do you remember the time when the disciples were in a storm and they were fearing for their lives? We've talked about this before, right? They were so scared. Jesus is asleep in the boat. They're so scared they're gonna die. What do they do? They wake up Jesus and their words were this. Don't you care if we drown? Don't you care that this suffering is happening? Don't you care that this evil might take us out? Don't you care about this thing that looks like it's out of control, this hurricane? And, and I think we can all relate to that question, can't we? Where we've asked that, like, God, do you care? Now, what, what, what were they losing their faith in? I don't think it was that they'd lost faith in Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't have woken him up. Hey, get Jesus. Why bother? He can't do anything anyway. No, it wasn't that they lost faith in his power. They did lose faith in his love for them, in his care for them. That, that's the question. Don't you care? Now, I would, I would guess if you've faced suffering of any kind, you, you've probably brought yourself to that place where you've asked that question. God, God, can't you remove this temptation? God, God, can't you take this addiction away? God, can't you find me the spouse I'm looking for? God, can't you fix this illness? God, can't you bring my child back to you? God, can't you stop this pain in my heart? God, can't you fix this financial struggle? And when we believe that the, the power of the chaos around us and the suffering around us, when we believe that's greater than the love of Jesus, we lose hope and we say, don't you care if I drown? I love how Charles Spurgeon said it, though he said this, God is too good to be unkind and he's too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I love that. When you can't trace his hand, when you can't understand what God must be doing, he says we trust his heart. Why? Because he's too good to be unkind. He's too wise to be mistaken in what's happening. How do we do that? How do we, how do we trust the heart of God? Again, we look to the cross that he's made a way for us, that, that Jesus didn't just calm the storm for those disciples. He embraced the storm of God's wrath towards sin, embraced a suffering that we could never imagine, all the sin and shame of eternity put on him. Why did he do it? For the joy that was set before him, Hebrews says. The joy that was set before him was you, his love for you, his care for you, your salvation, your redemption, your freedom. So in the midst of suffering, how do we find our hope? Our hope is found in the fact that we've met Christ. And if we live through this storm of suffering, Jesus is there. If we drown, Jesus is there. And our greatest hope is that he loves us and death is not the end. And we cry out for miracles. Jesus still performs miracles. But remember that, that he's taken the sting of death. He's taken eternity for us. And we hold tightly to his cross. We hold tightly to his resurrection in our darkest hour. Now, I love how Hebrews 13, 6 says this. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. That's what, what, what the midwives are saying. That's what Moses' mom would be saying. The Lord's my helper. 
I'm not gonna fear. What can man do to me? Now, that, that's, a, that's a great question because here's the answer to that. What can man do to me? A lot. Pharaoh could have killed the midwives. But nothing compares to what God brings us in eternity. So we can say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And when you enter into eternity with all your scars from life here on earth, Jesus will put his hand, his scarred hand over your scars and say, you're mine, I've set you free. We've been set free. We've been set free from fear. We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from hopelessness. We've been set free from our own pride that would say, I don't need to be set free. And that's our hope. Our only hope is this knowing that Jesus has taken care of our eternity and that changes our now. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the hope that we have. Lord, that you would have, in your sovereignty, have rescued the children of Israel pointing to a greater rescue that, that, that we would get to experience. God, that you would so clearly lay out that, that all that Satan is up to, he can't stop your plans. And that God, in a, in a way that we can't understand, that even when it seems like you're silent, you're still at work. And God, would you do that even this morning? Lord, would you, would you reveal your heart this morning? Father, for those who are here this morning and they are under the weight of chaos or struggle, Lord God, would you, would you in a real way, by the power of your spirit, God, would they, be, would they be able to see through the cross your love, your care? And Lord, even when we don't know why you're doing what you're doing, that we would trust your heart. Father, I pray that as we move out as a church wanting to be that for others, wanting to be sent out to, to reach others who are struggling, wanting to be little Moses, wanting to go out and say, I, I want to liberate people from, from what they're wrestling with because we have the hope of you, Lord Jesus. God, when you send us out, God, would you humble us? Father, those who are here this morning who are already humbled, Lord, would you, would you make sure they hear so clearly that in their brokenness, in their humility, in their dependency on you, they are so able to be greatly used by you. Father, where there is self-sufficiency, would you weed it out? Would you take us to the same school you took Moses to, God, so that we could be a church full of humble, broken people, fully dependent on you, fearing you above everything else because we've seen you. Because we know we've been set free. Thank you for this freedom, and I pray this in Jesus' name.